0: Let's turn together to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 9. And if you want to follow along with us in one of the blue Bibles in front of you, Daniel 9 is on page 746. Page 746, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to cover a big chunk of the chapter this morning, but. To start us out, I would just like to read verses one through five from Daniel nine. Here's what the word of the Lord says to us through Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. I want you to think with me for a minute about. The difference between a conversation with someone that you just met for the first time and a conversation with someone that you've known forever and that knows you super well and you know them really well. Those are two very different conversations. If, if you're just meeting someone for the first time, you probably don't lead out with, hey, my name is such and such. Let me tell you the deepest, darkest secret that I've only told two other people. It's probably not. It's usually more small talk, back and forth. But, but there's a, a difference, there's an openness and honesty with the person that you know really well that you don't have with someone you just met. Because how we talk with one another, how we how we talk to each other and the things we talk about with one another shows what we know about them, what we know about ourselves, and how those two things meet. And we've been going through a series um, on prayer since the beginning of the year called The Story of Prayer, where we're walking through the storyline of the Bible, to see how prayer develops and unfolds and what that means for how we pray today. And the same thing is true that we just said about conversation. The same thing is true in prayer. How we pray shows what we know about God, what we know about ourselves, and how those two things go together. This is especially true with if and how we pray when we fail. It's especially true with if we pray and how we pray when we mess up. Also known as prayers of confession to the Lord. You've seen Psalm 32 this morning celebrating the goodness of confessing our sins to the Lord. And in Daniel 9, we see him praying a prayer of confession to the Lord. Now, I know there's mixed reactions when you hear that word confession because there may be different pictures in in your mind of, of what that means. Maybe it just means like, only something negative and discouraging because it's us just talking about all the things we've done wrong the whole time. Or maybe you see it as something unnecessary. If Jesus already died on the cross and forgave all our sins, why do we need to confess them to the Lord? Isn't that just bringing something back up that he's already taken care of? Or maybe it's confusing. I'm not really sure why we need to pray prayers like that. But it, Or mainly, maybe you have a little bit of Disagreement with it because it feels like we're just talking about ourselves the whole time. And when we pray, aren't we supposed to talk to the Lord about other things than just ourselves? Well, I think as we'll see from Daniel 9, true prayerful confession shows us just as much about the Lord as it does about ourselves. It's just as much, maybe even more so, about the Lord, and you'll see what I mean here in a little bit, as it is about us. And I think this is a correction for me, maybe a correction for you, because I think we tend to often think of confession as a one-sided thing. That it's just me coming to the Lord, telling him everything I've done wrong. Well, that seems to mean that confession is only tied to failure. So therefore, of course, we would see it as this really negative, discouraging, downtrodden type thing. But I think, as we'll see in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's prayer of confession shows us that real confession of the Lord is not one-sided, it's two-sided. Not in the Lord, we tell the Lord what we've done wrong, he tells us what he's done wrong. That's not what I mean. He's perfect and holy and does no wrong. But in that, yes, we are confessing our wrong and our guilt, but we're also receiving and celebrating God's mercy and goodness. So that actually, confession is more about faith in the Lord than it is about our failure. And that's what I think we'll see from Daniel chapter 9 as we walk through this prayer, that confession is an expression of faith, not failure. As we confess our sins to the Lord, it's an expression of faith, not failure. Because we know where to go when we fail. It's an expression of our trust in him. And it's, an, it's a right response in light of who our God is. And we're going to walk through Daniel's prayer in, in three different movements and see that we confess because of this, we confess because of this, we confess because of this. So the way we'll walk through it is like this. We confess in response to God's word, we confess in response to his mercy, and we confess in response to his glory. So hopefully we all leave this place with a more fully formed understanding of why we pray and why we confess to the Lord and see how it should play a part in our daily lives. So let's look at the first one. That we confess in response to God's word. We confess in response to God's word. We've been covering a lot of ground through this study on prayer as we jump through the Old Testament. Of course, we can't cover everything that's there right now. But hopefully, it's giving you, if you didn't have this already, a big picture of the Bible story. That it is, there's a lot of little stories and a lot of books. But it is one main story that's happening that the Lord is working there. And last week, we looked at the prayer of Elijah when he was with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. This was in the book of 1 Kings. And Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets uh, back back in his day, and he served the Lord during the period of the kings. And we saw during the period of the kings, there were some great kings, and there were a ton of bad kings, and there were some more really bad kings. And the one we looked at last week, Ahab, was one of them. And it got so bad through this period of the kings That people turned away from the Lord more and more, and and the kings were leading the people of God. The kings who were meant to lead the people of God were leading the people of God away from God. And it happened more and more and got worse and worse to the point that God, and God told them way, way back in the day of Moses that this is what would happen if they did this, but God's people were eventually conquered by another nation and taken from the land that God promised them to the land of their enemies. And in Daniel's case, he's taken to Babylon. And, Dan- and like I said, the Lord told them this would happen, but it didn't change their ways. It didn't change their sin. Daniel was a young man when he was first taken to Jer- from Jerusalem to Babylon. And now, as we come to Daniel 9, decades have passed. Some 60 years have passed. Daniel's an older man at this point. And we start with this reminder in Daniel chapter 9 that the situation he's found himself in hasn't really changed. Let's look at verse 1. He says, da- Daniel writing here says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a who was made a king over the realm of the Chaldeans. All that to say, I'm still under an enemy king in enemy territory. This has not changed over decades and decades and decades. But notice, even though all of that hasn't changed, notice what Daniel's doing. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel is reading the books, as he calls them, and then talks about reading from Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel is reading what we would call today the Bible. He's reading God's word. He's reading Jeremiah. He's reading the books that make up what we know today as the Old Testament. And as he's reading the truth that the Lord gave to Jeremiah to give to his people, Daniel realizes that their time in Babylon is about to come to a close. He says it in verse 2, that I perceived in the books of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations, the destruction of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he realizes the Lord said this would happen for 70 years, and we're getting close to that number. And Daniel could have been reading a couple different places in The Book of Jeremiah, but I'll I'll show you just one, Uh, Jeremiah chapter twenty-five. You'll see this up on your screen. Jeremiah twenty-five verses eleven and twelve says this. God says, "This whole land, talking about uh, what He's doing in that day, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years." Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Daniel's reading these kinds of parts of the Bible and realizes the Lord said this was going to happen for 70 years. It's almost been 70 years since Jerusalem was destroyed and me and others were taken from there, captive and and brought to Babylon, which means it's almost time for this whole exile thing to be over. It's an important point here that nothing going on in Babylon tells Daniel it's about to be over. Daniel's not starting to notice some kind of weakening in the power and government of Babylon. There's no movement stirring among the people of Israel that are like, man, I think our people are about to get out of this thing. Daniel is seeing his life and interpreting his life through God's word. Even though his surroundings don't seem like anything's about to change, Daniel knows God's word has promised something's about to change. And so his first response is not to throw a party. His first response is not to do kind of Paul Revere style and jump on a horse and start riding through town saying this thing's almost over, this thing's almost over. His first response is to pray. And here's what he does in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel puts himself in this humble, mournful posture before the Lord, and he prays. It's humble and mournful, the the fasting and the sackcloth and ashes. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next section, but it's humble and mournful because of what he's about to confess to the Lord. But for now, let's just simply see that Daniel prays in response to God's word, in response to God's promises. We've seen this over and over throughout this series, even since the very first week. When we looked in Genesis chapter 4, And it said, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's not just people saying, Lord, 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 over and over. It's people saying, this is who the Lord is. This is what he's promised. We're praying for him to do what he's promised. This is exactly what Daniel's doing. And this is what prayer is for us. It's calling on God to do what he's promised. This is why I'm saying confession is an expression of faith, not failure. Because we're trusting God to do what he's promised. And this is what Daniel does. Knowing God has promised an end to their time in Babylon doesn't make Daniel think, well, there's no need to pray. I mean, it's been about 60-something years, got a little bit more time. I know the Lord's going to do it, so I'm just going to sit back and watch. No, actually, knowing that this is what God's going to do prompts Daniel to pray. It doesn't discourage him from praying. It encourages him to pray. Because God's promise becomes the starting point, becomes the foundation of his prayer. And Daniel uses the language of God's word and takes on the priorities of God's word in his prayers. And I think the same can apply for us today. Not not that our situation is the exact same as Daniel's. But more in the sense that the foundation of our prayers is not our circumstances, is not our needs. It's God's promises. Confession is an expression of faith, not failure. And we go to God confessing to him, trusting that he is who he said he is and that he'll do what he said he's going to do. This means we should pray with our Bibles open. Yes, we bring specific needs and struggles and issues that we have, but we pray for those in light of what God says here. Seeing what he tells us to pray for seeing what he has promised, and praying for that. One practical way to do this, and this is just a way I'm trying to grow in this in my own life. Maybe this works for you, maybe it doesn't. So it's not the only way to do it, but just a way that I'm working on, is as you're reading God's word, maybe you read a psalm or one of the letters in the New Testament. This would be a little harder with some of the stories. But as you're reading God's word, you just read a verse, And then you think, what's a way I can praise God from this verse? What's something I can confess to the Lord from this verse? What's something I can ask him based on this verse? What's something I can praise him for, confess to him, or ask him, for for myself or for other people? And you read a verse, praise him, confess to him, ask, then move to the next verse praise him, confess to him, ask. Just a way for us to get in the, in the rhythm of the routine of letting God's word fill and shape our prayers. And I think you'll find that you find new ways to pray about the things, same things you pray about all the time. And there are a lot of things that we just pray about on repeat, and that's good. But sometimes we start thinking, well, maybe God's not gonna come through, and that's usually because we're praying the same way about the same things, rather than praying for those things through his word. So we confess in response to God's word, and we pray in response to God's word, but also in response to his character. And this is the the next piece that we'll see here, that we confess in response to God's mercy. If God was not merciful, why in the world would we go and confess to him? What hope would there be for us? I think that's what what Daniel sees. Because as Daniel reads God's promises, it sparks this this prayer. Let's look back in verse four again. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, "O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You notice Daniel starts his prayer with such a clear picture of who God is It's not fuzzy at all. He's a very clear, obvious picture of who God is. And he's about to confess his sins. He's about to confess the sins of the people of Israel. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with, Lord, we confess. He starts with who the Lord is, not who he is. He sees God's greatness and that he's the great and awesome God. But he also sees God's goodness That he is the God who keeps covenant. He keeps his promises and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He sees God's majesty and he sees God's mercy. He says, Lord, you are the all-powerful God who is far above us, yet you love us and you always keep your promises to us even though we don't always keep our promises to you. Daniel's understanding of who God is actually moves him to confess his sins. Something for us to think about in our own experience. When we realize we've failed, when we realize we've messed up, when we realize we've broken God's commands, that we have failed to love him and we've failed to love others, what is your first reaction? Not the one you know you're supposed to do, but like your legitimate reaction first reaction. For most of us, it's probably like our parents, Adam and Eve, run and hide. Try to cover it up ourselves and hope God doesn't notice it. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart and your mind in those moments and pay attention to what's it telling you about what you're thinking and seeing about God. If we see God in a way that makes us want to run away from him when we sin, and this is, this is me too, but if we see God in a way that makes us want to run away from him when we sin, our vision needs adjustment. It's like in the, in the middle of the night, you've had this experience, maybe you want to fess up to it, maybe you don't. But you've had this experience where maybe you wake up in the middle of the night, you're kind of half asleep, half awake, that weird, that weird state that I hate, I hate being in that state and you can't really control when it's going to happen. But you wake up in the middle of the night, your eyes are kind of open, and you see a shadow or a silhouette of something, and you think, What in the world? Who is in my room right now? Who? Or you hear a sound, you think, Some, there, are, there are people busting in our house right now. But if you were fully awake, you would realize, Oh, that's just the wind blowing the curtain, or the light of the moon coming in on this, or that's the sound of, of this kicking on in the house downstairs, or whatever. And the same thing. When we we mess up, when we fail, our sin blinds us not only to see ourselves rightly, but also to see the Lord rightly. And it skews how we see the Lord when actually the truth of God's word and his character should lead us like Daniel to him, toward him, not away from him. And here's what Daniel confesses in verse 5. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. This confession is why Daniel fasted and put on sackcloth and and ashes. Those were all outward expressions of the inward sorrow he was feeling for his sin and the sins of his people. Notice he says, we, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. And he uses so many different words to describe one thing, He's describing how they've broken God's rule, but he says we've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. What does all that mean? Well, we've turned aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel says, when I look at myself and when I look at your people lined up next to your word, it doesn't match. We've fallen short. We haven't obeyed you perfectly. And there's a clear definition of sin here in verse 6. He says, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We have not listened. He doesn't say we haven't heard. As any parent knows, there's a difference between hearing and listening. He says, We haven't listened. We haven't obeyed. We haven't followed. This is at the heart of every sin in my life and in your life. This is at the heart of the sickness of sin in our hearts that we do not listen. We do not follow what God says. That's what sin is. It's exactly what it is. Well, you say, Well, there's a lot of commands in the Bible. So, how are we supposed to follow all of them? I don't even know all of them. Well, Jesus so helpfully says that we can sum all the commands in the Bible up into two commands. that You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. None of us have done that. None of us have done that. And and you, you may not think you've disobeyed God. You may not think that sin is even that big a deal or that even the definition of sin is something that's different for everybody. But we've all failed. None of us have perfectly loved God. None of us have perfectly loved each other. And your reaction might, right now might be, this is exactly what I would expect a pastor to say. This is what pastors do. They get up and they just make people feel bad about themselves and they feel good about themselves for making people feel bad about themselves. That's not my goal. That's not Daniel's goal. That's not God's goal. The reason I want us to feel the weight of our sin is so that we can feel the incredible relief that God's mercy brings. A life raft does not look like a big deal if you don't realize you're drowning. But as soon as you realize you're drowning, the life raft is the best thing you've ever seen in your entire life that's what's so impactful about this prayer because he goes back and forth. It's not just, God, we've done wrong, and here's some more stuff we've done wrong, and here's some more stuff we've done wrong, and here's some more stuff we've done wrong. God, have we felt bad enough for you to forgive us now? It's not his prayer. He actually goes back and forth between the sin of the people and the mercy of God. I'll show you what I mean. Let's look at verse eight together. He says, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame, He said, our our, our guilt is in front of everybody. Everybody can see it. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But pay attention to verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. He says, the sin came from us, but the forgiveness and mercy came from the Lord. There's another spot. Look at verse 15. And this goes back to what I said earlier about all of this is one big story. The Bible's all, all connected. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel's saying God's mercy is not an abstract idea, it's not just something that floats out there. He says, Lord, we've seen your mercy in the past. This is generations and generations before Daniel. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and by the mercy of God, though they didn't deserve it, they were rescued out of that slavery and brought into the promised land. And Daniel is saying, God, you've shown your mercy before. Show it to us again. You've shown your powerful mercy to your people in the past. Show your powerful mercy to us now. And then verse 18, which I think is the high point of the prayer, Daniel chapter 9, verse 18. He says, Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Here's the key part for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He says, we're not praying this prayer because we're good, but because you're good. We're not praying this prayer because we deserve it. You know we don't. We know we don't. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve to have our prayers heard, but we know, God, that you are merciful. So hear our prayers. This is why Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. In response to the Lord's Prayer, that part of the Lord's prayer, forgive us, Martin Luther, I think, makes a helpful connection for us when he says this. If anyone insists on his own goodness and despises others, let him look into himself when this petition confronts him. This this part of the Lord's prayer, forgive us as we forgive our debtors. He will find he is no better than others. And that in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head and come into the joy of forgiveness only through the low door of humility. None of us deserve to be here. I don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. But by the goodness and mercy of God, we can say, I know Jesus. We can say, my sins have been forgiven. We can say, I'm going to heaven. We can say, I'm a Christian. We can say, I'm a part of the people of God, not by anything we have done or accomplished, but every step we take, we are walking on the mercy of God and the path that he's made for us. Jesus' life, his death, His resurrection on our behalf is our only appeal for forgiveness. When we go to God and ask him to forgive us, we're not going, hey, God, I want you to know I messed up this week, but I also did this and this and this really well, so feel like we could see this the same way, and that would cancel this out. It's not how it works. It's not how a holy and just God works. But when we say, Lord, I'm coming to you with these failures and with these mess-ups, and with this sin, and I have not listened to your word, and I know only because of the work of Jesus cannot you even hear my prayer even more forgive it. We're not asking God to reconsider our debt. We're not asking God for a new kind of payback plan on our debt. We're asking for forgiveness. We're asking for mercy. We're asking for him to wipe it out. And the only place to find mercy and forgiveness is to go to the Lord. And so we pray this way, and we pray this way that that reminds us of our consistent failings, but it also reminds us of God's consistent mercy. That if you trace the line of our failings and God's mercy, the line of your sin and, and my failings and my sin would not outrun the line of God's mercy. The line of God's mercy and grace is always longer. It's always wider. It's always better. So we confess our sins and receive God's mercy to become a Christian and to keep living as a Christian every day after that. But all of this, as we confess in response to his word and we confess in response to his mercy, lastly, all of this has a bigger picture. All of this has a bigger goal in mind, and that's the last part here, that we confess in response to God's glory. In the last part of Daniel's prayer, we see the foundation of his prayer, we keep seeing, The foundation of his prayer is not himself. It's the Lord. Here's here's where I get that from verse 16. He says, O O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Notice the emphasis on who Jerusalem and the people of God belong to. He says, your city, your people, your Jerusalem. And it continues in verse 17. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your, na- for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. And then what we just read, A minute ago, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. Your servant, your own sake, your sanctuary, called by your name. This is where we start to see the soil that Daniel's prayer is planted in. He doesn't plant his prayer in the expectations that the people of God are finally going to get their act together this time. He knows the Old Testament too well to think that. He doesn't plant his prayer in the expectation that the people of God are going to finally start obeying and stay that way. He doesn't plant his prayer in the hope of this is a fresh start with the Lord. Who knows what's going to happen? His confidence to bring this confession and request before God is rooted in God's righteousness. It's rooted in God's mercy. It's rooted in God acting for his own glory. That's why he uses the phrase, for your own sake. For your own reputation. This is how the prayer actually ends. Look in verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. Here's the phrase. For your own sake, O oh my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. We've got to be careful here not to humanize God. This is not like a situation where someone gives a person a bunch of compliments so in return they'll forgive them. God's not like us. He's not human. This is not prideful. He is God. So let's let him be God. Because our greatest good will always come from God getting the most glory. It's not prideful for the best player on a basketball team to get the ball at the end of a close game. That's what's best for the team. And it's not prideful for us to pray for God to get glory and praise because that's what's best for us. And so what's best for the world. And Daniel sees this connection. He realizes that the rescue from Babylon, he so desperately wants, will lift high the name of the Lord in the eyes of the nations around them. And so for our prayers, what this means for us is that God's honor and glory must be the main goal of everything we ask. That in any situation we're asking ourselves, God, um, you put me in this situation, how can you be glorified? How can you be honored? How can the attention go to you? And so we should be able to say as we pray, Lord, do this for the sake of your name. I'm not, and I'm not even saying we pray that in like a cheap, shallow way. But in a genuine way, Lord, I don't, even, I don't see how you can be glorified in this, but I trust that you can. So do this for your glory. Do whatever is going to show me, do whatever is going to show other people how great you are. Well, after Daniel prayed for God's mercy and glory based on God's promises, we know God answered Daniel's prayer. You see that at the end of the chapter, and there's even a hint at at the beginning of the chapter that Daniel longed to return to Jerusalem. That's what he's praying for. Daniel's focus was on Jerusalem. Not as this one only geographical place the Lord can work, but that this is the place of God's promises. And this is the place that God's promises are going to come to fruition. Even back in Daniel 6, where did Daniel face when he prayed? He prayed toward Jerusalem, it tells us. And then in chapter 9, verse 3, he says, Then I turn my face to the Lord God. Maybe that's looking up to the Lord. Maybe that's looking toward Jerusalem. Well, a few generations after this, the promised Savior, Jesus, would enter the city of Jerusalem. And he would face suffering and he would face death on a cross in order to secure forgiveness and mercy for me and for you. So that God's mercy is ready for us any time we go to him with mercy. A confession. You may think, well, I don't feel like I can go to the Lord to confess my sin. The Lord is waiting on sinners to come to him. So if you're a sinner, you fit the mold of the person that can come to him. His mercy is there and it's waiting. Because of Jesus, sinners like me and you, we can bring our failures to a holy and righteous God and find mercy and grace. So confession is an expression of faith, not failure. Because we're calling on him to do what he is said to do, to keep his promises. We're calling on him to be what he said he is, to be merciful. We're calling on him to achieve what he's purposed to achieve, glorifying his name. So we don't just come to him with our needs. We don't just come to him with our wants. We don't just come to him with our troubles. We come to him with our failures. Because by faith... We know the Lord brings mercy to us and uses all things for our good and for his glory.